life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who believed and did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one who has ever seen, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Thank you so much for reading for us. Before we start, let's, uh, let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that uh, your word is indeed a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Father, I pray that as we come to your word this evening, uh, Father, I pray that by your spirit uh, you would uh, enliven our minds, soften our hearts. And might we hear what you, are, what you have to say to us. And Father, I pray that we would see more of uh, the beauty of what you have done for us in and through Christ Jesus. So be at work in our hearts by your spirit in our midst. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this evening we're kicking off a new sermon series uh, looking at the Gospel of John. Now, uh, the Gospel of John is unlike the other Gospels. John is not trying to give us as much information as he possibly can about Jesus' life and death. Uh, but rather he chooses seven miracles and then very carefully constructs his book to reveal who Jesus is. And in this part of the series, running through on Sunday evenings to Christmas, we'll be journeying through the first three chapters of John's Gospel and starting to answer that question, who is Jesus? Let me just say a little uh, a bit about the book of John to start with first. Uh, first, the question that we need to ask is, why did John write his book? If you've got your Bibles open, uh, then please do turn to John chapter 20. Go towards the back of uh, John's Gospel uh, and have a look at verses, well, have a look at verse 31. Writing about the signs 
that Jesus has performed and that John records, he writes this in verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He writes so that we would know Jesus and that we would know what he has come to do. So let's now turn back to the start of the book of John, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And what we have here is basically an executive summary. John sets out the key foundational things that we need to be aware of. And those foundational truths are then unpacked through the rest of the book of John. And as they are unpacked, they point to who Jesus is and why he came. So point back to John chapter 20, verse 31. And to fully unpack these 18 verses, you need the rest of the book of John. So all we can do this evening is just scratch at the surface of these verses. Now, we had a little video that was run a little earlier in the service asking the question, who is Jesus? Now, I wonder what the average man or woman on the street might say if you walked up to him, thrust a microphone into his or her face and said... Who is Jesus? Well, you don't have to wonder. Thanks to technology, we're going to find out. Um, who is Jesus? I have no idea who Jesus is. I don't know if he exists, but I believe in him. I think it's a person who lived ages ago. Who is Jesus? He is the son of God in the Christian faith. Jesus for me is a... He's also a prophet. He probably was just some fellow who walked around with a beard and pretended to, and a bottle of wine in his back pocket and switched the water with the wine a couple of times and everyone loved him. Jesus to me is something we got taught about in infants and junior school, really. It's how many million people celebrate the best day. No one celebrates my birthday like that, so surely you must have existed. <laughs> Jesus is uh, my God. He's someone that, you know, I can relate to, I can pray to, I can talk to. The Son of God. But apparently, we are all God's children. So then what is so great about Jesus? I just love the lady at the end of that video who asked the question, you know, if we're all children of God, what's so great about Jesus? And at the simplest level, the book of John is directed at answering her question and addressing her presumption that she sneaks into her question there, if we're all children of God, are we? If we're all children of God, are we? What's so great about Jesus? Now, I don't know what you thought as John 1, 1 through 18 was being read this evening. It might be a text that you know really, really well. Uh, or it might seem opaque, difficult to access, bordering on academic. And the question, I guess, that we have is how can this be relevant for us today? It's relevant because it's the living word of God. And no matter what place or age that we find ourselves in, it speaks to us. And and we can see this in, um, uh, for instance, in this book. It's called uh, Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World that Says You Shouldn't. Now, in his book, the author Stephen McAlpine considers the way that our culture has benefited from technological improvements. 
But those improvements have fueled, uh, in part, what he calls an iWorld. iPhone, iMac, iPad, and so on. And the trouble is that in an iWorld, it's created a culture that's highly individualistic. And that has very significant issues for us. And he writes this. Despite its triumph, the iWorld isn't perfect. Two of the primary difficulties facing people in the iWorld are loneliness and insecurity. These are inherently byproducts of individualism. If individual freedom is the goal, and the means of achieving this freedom is replacing relationships of obligation and responsibility with a world of relational choice, then a certain amount of loneliness and insecurity will result. And that certain amount is, he writes, in places reaching a tipping point. A friend who works in a Christian organisation which conducts workshops in high schools told me that there are three questions consistently asked of her by young people. They centre around a lack of meaning and purpose, loss of identity and the risk of never being forgiven. And those three challenges and questions that people have relate to meaning, to purpose and identity and the risk that they will never be forgiven. And these are real questions, aren't they? These are questions that uh, aren't just questions that young people have. These are questions for all people. Uh, If you had a bunch of your friends who aren't Christians around for dinner and they were to tell you what was really on their heart, what was really on their minds, these three things would be right at the top of their list. Meaning, identity, and forgiveness. And the first 18 verses that we had read today of John's Gospel speak directly into this. The first 18 verses reveal who God is, and that enables us to find meaning. What God is doing, and that enables us to have an identity, and it also reveals how God grants the forgiveness that we need. It's a revelation from God to us. So let's look at those three things. Meaning, identity, and forgiveness. Firstly, meaning. If we ask people uh, what they think about the meaning of their lives, um, Oftentimes they'll respond with comments about the things that make them happy, the things that they enjoy doing, the things uh, that they want to achieve, perhaps. In other words, they root their meaning in themselves, who they are. Now, just as a question for reflection, more than anything else, uh, in this morning service, uh, we were asked, in one word, describe yourself. Great question. One word, describe yourself. Question just for yourselves, for your own reflection. What word did you use for yourself? Was it a word that was rooted in you? Or was it a word that was rooted in God? Yep, just leave that one with you to ponder. Now, but John begins by framing the question of meaning in a really, really big way. He frames the question by helping us to look outside of ourselves. If you've got your Bibles open, turn to John chapter 1, verse 1. Famous words, in the beginning. Now, he starts his gospel in the most explosive way you possibly could. He uses the same words that appear at the start of Genesis. In the beginning. 
And this is completely deliberate. As John starts to tell us about the one in whom we are to to trust for eternal life, he begins with, in the beginning. He's instantly putting us on notice that he's about to tell us something that is enormous. He is, if you like, about to paint on the biggest canvas imaginable. Now, whereas in Genesis, Moses writes of the beginning that has its focus on creation, John here goes way back before creation. And he points back to where creation hadn't even been spoken into existence. He says in verses 1 and 2, take a look with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Right before all things, that this Word existed, and this Word was God. He was right there in the beginning, before creation. Now John uses a really freighted word here when he says word. Yeah, The English word that you have in your Bibles, word, is in the Greek, it's logos. Yeah, which you can see we get our root word for logic, yeah, logos. And let me explain why uh, this is such a freighted word. There were two dominant schools of thought uh, at the time where John wrote, and these are probably still dominant schools of thought today. One school of thought was the Stoics. And these people said that there was indeed a logic, there was a meaning, there was a divine purpose that stood behind the universe. That this logic, or logos, had created all things. And the Stoics went on to say that the meaning of life was to conform yourself to this logos, to align yourself with this principle behind the universe. And that if things in your life weren't going well, or there was suffering, or your desires weren't being met, it was because you were out of step with the Logos. You then either had to work hard to get yourself aligned with the Logos, and as you did this, they argued that your life would go well. So the Stoics agreed with John that there was a logic, there was a Logos, but for the Stoics, the Logos was remote, uninterested, a cold and abstract ordering principle, impersonal and uncaring. That's one school of thought. The other school of thought were the Epicureans. They thought there was no logos, no logic, no principle behind the universe. For them, there was nothing higher than their own desires. You could say that their motto was eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There was nothing beyond life for them. But ironically, as you drain life of any meaning beyond death, you drain life of any meaning. So Epicureans, they denied the existence of a Logos, and for them, ultimately, life was empty and without meaning. Both schools of thought were unsatisfactory. Both schools of thought left you cold. So what John says here is really explosive, because John says that there is meaning behind the universe, and that directly challenged the Epicureans, and John challenged the Stoics as well. He says that the Logos behind the universe is deeply interested in his creation. In verse 9, John says that this Logos came into the world, that this Logos knew his people. He came to them in verses 
10 and 11. And that he makes a living relationship possible with him. And we see that in verse 13. So John shatters all categories and he tells us that the logos behind the universe isn't random. It's not a program. It's not an algorithm. It's a person. The logos is a person. And most staggeringly of all, this one, who we're told in verse 3, who created all things, who gives life to all, is the one who came into the world in verse 9. Now, if that no longer amazes you, can I be bold and suggest that you become complacent in your thinking? What John says there is absolutely huge. So importantly, meaning is not found in us. Rather, it's found in something that lies outside us, the Logos. It's found in the one who has created all things, God himself. And and that's a challenge, isn't it, to to us as well. Uh, When, uh, you know, we have to ask ourselves, where in our lives are we living as Stoics? Believing in God, but not trusting that he's personal. Not trusting that he's close. Not trusting that he loves you. For you, perhaps, God is remote. You know, I'm kind of happy. God's over there. He's doing his thing. I'm over here. I'm doing my thing. And as long as God doesn't interfere in my plans and my life, I'll keep coming to church and reading the Bible. But I don't really, I don't really trust him. Or or where in your life are you an Epicurean? Living for the here and now. Paying only lip service to your eternal home? Do you doubt or even disbelieve the eternal promises of scripture? Are the joys and the toys of this world what you're really about? Now because meaning is found in the logos, the word, we have something meaningful that we can say to our non-believing friends. We can point them to the word of God. More on that later. So it's the Logos, the word, it's that in which we find meaning. And in these 18 verses, we can see what God is doing. As God reveals who he is and what he's doing, we find both identity and forgiveness. So that brings us to our second point, identity. Who are we? Who are we? That's probably the deepest cry, isn't it, of our culture at the moment. Who are we? And it's worth just taking a moment to think about and reflect on how we've got here. Uh, In his book, The Real American Dream, um, Andrew Del Banco paints a picture of the current human predicament. And uh, he explains how we've lost uh, our identity. And he reflects really on on the US, but I think it's, it's helpful for us as well. And what he concludes is that what we need as, as humanity, what we need is we need a meta-narrative, some overarching truth, uh, some big picture that makes sense of our lives. And without that, he argues, we'll all unravel. And he points out in the US and in Europe that the big meta-narrative, uh, the big story under which we all used to sit, was the story of God, the creator of heaven and earth. Now, that storyline held for a long time, and then we come through the Enlightenment, 
Humanity dismantles that picture and it kind of falls from God down a level to nation. Then as we journey through the 20th century, nation, as the big story gives way, as expressive individualism comes through and it goes from nation to self. It comes to self. And extraordinary, we are living in an era that is completely unlike any other time in all of human history, where culture says there is no big story under which we sit. This is a really unique time in all of history. And Del Banco summarizes the problem really beautifully uh, when he writes this. He writes this, the pretense of modern individualism. The modern self tries to compensate with posturing and competitive self-display as it feels itself more and more cut off from anything substantial or enduring. It breaks down under bombardment by images that merge fantasy with reality or by advertising that becomes news. In such a world, it is impossible to distinguish foreground from background or the spurious from the authentic. He goes on. And the individual, the free individual, he says, is marooned in a perpetual present, playing alone with its trinkets and its baubles. Marooned in a perpetual present. All identity stripped away. Now, if that's the problem... That's pretty depressing, isn't it? If that's the problem, what's the solution? Now, the solution is not to continue to look inside our own hearts to discover our identity. And it's a beautiful thing about doing the Real Change series. We can see that our hearts, above all things, are deceitful. John tells us that our, our identity isn't discovered inside, but it's revealed. It's revealed by what God is doing. It's not discovered by self-examination, but revealed by the word of God. So why don't you take a look with me at verses 9 through 13. John writes this. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John tells us that Jesus, the true light, comes into the world with a purpose, to give his people an identity. And I just want to think about that for a moment. Take a look at what John is saying to us here. In verse 9, John tells us that Jesus comes into the world and that he gives light to everyone. There is no person, no people group, no location, no class, no ability, no wealth, no birth that precludes someone from seeing the light. And and think about being in the dark, somewhere where there is absolutely no light. I don't know if you've been in a huge auditorium or or a church very late at night when the building is completely dark. Nothing but darkness. There, even the smallest light... The dimmest bulb, the smallest candle, burns brightly, doesn't it? You can see it straight away. Our eyes are drawn automatically to the light, no matter how faint or small it is. But John tells us that all of humanity, 
rejected that light. Humanity rejected that light. We see that in verse 10. Humanity prefers the darkness to the light. Jesus comes to the world and the world says no. No. And in verse 11, we're told that even his own people, the people who were expecting the Messiah to come, didn't receive him. Now think about that for a minute. What would you expect God to do? The loving a good creator comes to his people and they reject him. What, why, what might we think God's response to that should be? To leave us in our own mess, perhaps? To demand that we recognize him? I mean, we'd expect some form of retribution or rebuke. But amazingly, in verse 12, to this evil and crooked generation, God comes holding out an amazing offer. An offer for those who have rebelled against him. The offer is that they have the right to become children of God. Through Jesus, we can be adopted into God's family. A permanent change in status. A new identity. An identity that will never change. An identity that is eternal. Those who receive Christ would have a new identity. An identity that's rooted in something much bigger than us. It's an identity that draws us into something worthy, something noble, something exciting. It's an identity that draws us, doesn't it, to live a bigger life. Something that we can truly live for. Something that we can die for. Something that's true. It's an identity that lifts us out of the perpetual present into an eternity. It's an identity that makes the world's trinkets and baubles just that. Trinkets and baubles. And not things that define our identity. And just when you think it can't get more amazing than this, in verse 13, what does John tell us? He tells us that it comes through the work of God. It's absolutely nothing that we do. It's amazing, isn't it? We bring absolutely nothing to the party. And look at the threefold way that John drives this point home. He says it's not of blood, in other words, not of family lineage, which means that no heritage and race can help not of the flesh in other words we can do nothing ourselves to become children of God and it's not through our sexual desire no change of status comes because of God's decision not because we're choice people but because we're chosen people not choice but chosen that though does beg a question doesn't it how How is this change of status, this new identity, possible? If humanity's rebelled against God, how are we made right? Now that brings us to our third point, forgiveness. Now you might think that the question of forgiveness uh, isn't a problem in the mind of the world around us. In our highly individualistic culture, you get to choose what's right, you get to choose what's wrong. No one can tell you what's right and no one can tell you what's wrong that we mustn't let other people do that we've got to decide for ourselves 
But if we decide right and wrong, surely forgiveness isn't a problem. But there are two lived problems that reveal that there is a deep hunger for forgiveness. It's a problem on the outside and there's a problem on the inside. The outside problem first. The novelist Franz Kafka, he wrote a very, very depressing book called The Trial. Uh, It tells of a young bank official, Joseph Kay, uh, who is arrested and he's initially brought to uh, to the bureau, uh, arrested and detained in custody. But no one will tell him what he's done wrong. No one tells him what he's done wrong. Despite his constant returns to the bureau, no one will tell him what he's done wrong. And the book covers a year, and over that year he gradually becomes more and more convinced that actually, maybe there is something I've done wrong. Maybe I have done something wrong. And eventually he's re-arrested, he's taken away willingly, and he's killed. Very depressing book. Joseph K. lets them do that. I know it's depressing, but the point is this, that he knew deep down inside that he lived in a way that meant that he needed forgiveness. He'd failed others, he'd failed himself. He knew it wasn't enough to say, I'm not guilty, because deep down he knew that he was. He knew that he deserved judgment and that he needed forgiveness. And that's our human condition. Our hearts tell us, whether we believe in God or not, that we need forgiveness. And this is something that John writes about in John 16. So that's the problem inside, that the Spirit convicts us. There's a problem outside. It doesn't matter how much you tell people that you uh, decide what's right and wrong for yourself, that you get to make that decision. Because as soon as you put anything on social media, yeah, you know where I'm going, as soon as you put anything on social media, there's an army of people telling you why you're wrong, declaring judgment against you. You know you need forgiveness. So whether it's an inward conviction or whether it's an external conviction, we all know that we need forgiveness. And we know that our relationship with God is broken, that we need forgiveness. And John tells us that we can only receive that forgiveness through this new status. How is that done? Take a look at verse 14 with me. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John's told us, hasn't he, that the Logos was there in the beginning, verses 1 and 2, that this Logos creates all things, verse 3, that this Logos, this word, uh, was coming with the express intention of granting as a gift to those who accepted him, the right to become children of God, verses 9 through 13. And then John tells us in verse 14 that this comes through forgiveness. Okay? Now we can see that John tells us two things in that verse, right? Firstly, he tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And secondly, he tells us that we have seen his glory. Okay, now let me unfold those two things because the word forgiveness doesn't jump out when we look at that verse, okay? Now, John uses another really loaded word when he says, the word dwelt among us. The root for this word 
comes from the Greek tabernacle or tent. Quite literally in the Greek it says the word pitched a tent among us. Okay, now the original readers of John's Gospel would have had their ears prick up at that point. To speak of the tabernacle conjures up images of God rescuing his people and meeting them after that rescue from Egypt, which we find in Exodus. God commands his people and Moses to do what? To build a tabernacle, a tent, which contains the Holy of Holies above which God's presence comes to dwell. And at the heart of that tabernacle, at the heart of that tent, that's a place where humanity and God meet. And the only way that humanity and God could meet was because at the heart of the tabernacle was a system of sacrifice. Yeah, right at the heart of the tabernacle, the place where God chooses to dwell amongst his people, there's a system of sacrifice. It was sacrifice that enabled the people to come into the presence of God. So right at the heart of God's law, God reveals that for humanity to be reconciled to God, there's a need for sacrifice. Our need of forgiveness could only be met by sacrifice, by someone paying the price of our rebellion against God. But what's the sacrifice in the tabernacle that holds the word that became flesh? And what John says next is really remarkable. Take a look with me in verse 14. He says, we have seen his glory. We've seen his glory. Now in John's gospel, the glory of Christ is deeply woven together with his work on the cross. John ties together the hour of Christ's death with Christ's glory. And we see that in John chapter 12 verse 23 for instance so John's telling us in these few words that the sacrifice at the heart of this tabernacle this is the word made flesh that the death of the word made flesh is the point at which God is glorified the glory of God is revealed in his only son the word made flesh as he pays the price for our rebellion You see, God came on a rescue mission, and he didn't come at the risk of his life. He came at the cost of his life. He came to rescue us, to live the life that we should have lived, and then die the death that we deserve. On the cross, he lost his identities. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because we get to claim that identity because Christ lost it. We get to be drawn in as children of God because the one true son of God was cast out. He pays the price of our rebellion and because of that, we can be forgiven. And because of that, we have the right to be called children of God and adopted into his family. That if we're prepared to receive what has been done for us, if we're prepared to trust in what God has done, that God will give us the right to be called children of God, to be declared right before him, to receive forgiveness. And that is good news. That is great news. Yes, thank you. Yeah. So the lady that we saw on the video right at the start, she was absolutely wrong. We are not all automatically 
children of God. So what's so special about Jesus? It's because of who he is and what he has done on the cross to rescue us from judgment. That's what makes Jesus special. People who believe what that lady on the videotape at the end says are in great danger. They risk coming before a holy God and relying on their own righteousness. Not receiving Christ is the way to eternal death. Receiving Christ is the way to eternal life. There are two very obvious applications. Firstly, rejoice. Yeah, rejoice. Allow the truth of what God has done for you individually, personally. Allow that truth to settle into the very core of your being. Allow that truth in. Believe it. Secondly, go and speak to people about Jesus. People are worried about meaning, identity, and forgiveness. And the word of God, John's gospel, speaks right into the things that are on your friends' hearts and minds. So why not? Get one of these. I know when you say to people, would you like to read the Bible with me, it terrifies them. Say, why don't you read an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus with me? This is a John's gospel. Tiny little book. Why don't you take this and read, and we can read it together. Just a chapter every week or so. Let's get into the word of God. Now, if that frightens you, there are resources. So this is called Word One to One. This is great, okay? Um, you, you, you need virtually no training. It's a book that has got everything that you need in it on one page. It's got the text. It's got questions you can ask. And it's got the answers. Yeah, so when you're with somebody, they don't feel embarrassed that they don't know the answer to the question you're asking. Yeah, it's a really gentle and powerful way to draw people into looking at the word of God for themselves. To allow that word to work in their hearts. If either of those things terrify you, come and talk to me. Talk to Neil, talk to Colin. We'd love to equip you, to train you to have those conversations. We really would. So to wrap up, the first 18 verses of John's gospel, uh, they reveal who Jesus is and what God is doing in and through Christ. He's rescuing people for himself. And because of that, we can have real identity. We can find true meaning and we can know forgiveness that brings us into God's family as his children. So let's pray. John writes as, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that the things that are on uh, our hearts and minds, uh, that your word speaks into. Uh, Father, we thank you so much that uh, you have revealed uh, how it is that we can have an identity, we can find real meaning, and we can know forgiveness through what you have done in and through Christ. Father, help those truths settle deep into our hearts. Help us to be transformed by them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.